Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Lynn Freeman, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Well, now to the likely lasting impact of the Christchurch shootings on the wider population. Psychologist and disaster mental health expert Saab Johal says children and young people may have delayed responses to the terror attack. How do children and young people who may have viewed the video of the attack process that? And how can parents know what's going on for their children who may be suffering vicarious trauma and what can they do? Saab, so many questions still. Good morning. Sure, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Look, our pleasure. First of all, I know you want to put this into context and you're looking, I think, at evidence from Denmark. Yeah. Um, so since the um, attacks in on the 15th of March, there's been a lot of activity trying to ensure that those who've been affected get good access to comprehensive care. But I guess I was wondering how long would we need this to be in place and what sort of things might we see? And so one of the things that we can do is to look at what happened in Norway uh, back in 2011 in uh, Oslo and Etoya in, in the uh, attack there. And the impact actually in a neighboring country in Denmark, you know, they've got actually a really good way of collecting data there. So they've got a long data series so we can see the impact on a neighboring country. And they'd already found that after 9-11, some years afterwards, there was a 4% increase in the number of psychiatric admissions. So I was wondering, okay, so what is it that we can learn from that and the impact of that population? And how is it that that might help us in New Zealand to start to prepare for the longer impact? And what they found was that after the uh, impact, after the event in 2011, the terror attack there, they actually found a 16% increase in trauma or stress-related psychiatric cases. So these are serious enough for admission. 16% increase compared to a 4% increase from 9-11. But the really interesting thing that they found was actually a year and a half later, they found another increase, which was almost as big. And it seemed to coincide with the court case uh, as it was being processed through the judicial system in Norway. And this seemed to be having an impact upon those people who are living in Denmark, even though they had nothing to do, they weren't personally affected, or they didn't think they were, nobody reported that. And it seemed to be directly related to the number of mentions of the attacker's name in the media. And I think that's a really important point. It wasn't just the media penetration, but it was the mentions of the person's name, which is how they measured the media penetration. Well, that's incredibly interesting for us, isn't it, in light of the conversations the Prime Minister's made, who stance very clear in the media are having struggling with this very issue of the the power of the the name and the power of not naming. I think so. And I think it it leads us to then expect that actually when this starts going through the judicial system, not only will we be dealing with the impact of those people who have been 
directly affected and, and the wider community, because it's very clear that in a neighboring country where perhaps people weren't directly affected, because there was a cultural proximity and a geographical proximity there, there was still a wide impact in, in Denmark. But perhaps we can also then start to prepare and think about an influx of people feeling traumatized and showing symptoms as the media coverage of the subsequent court case then begins. We we have, as I mentioned in the introduction there, Saab, also that video that was seen by so many people and you, you can't take that back. So you have the media coverage, which I think on the whole um, was, was relatively restrained, but that damn video of the attack that got out there, seen by hundreds of thousands of people, that's an extra degree of trauma, surely, for the people who saw that, and we don't know how long that will linger with them. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with you in terms of the general media coverage was was good in terms of how it was they, they tried to manage the balance of reporting, but also not exposing people to too many details. But as you say, the lack of regulation or the inadequate regulation of the, and the propagation of the video meant that a lot of people saw this. A lot of young people would have seen this and have reported seeing it. And one of the things that I think we need to make very clear is that not making people feel like they need to hide the fact that they've seen this video because they feel like they might get into trouble or have in some way broken the law. I think the message is starting to get out but needs to be reinforced that actually if you have seen this video, you have been exposed and you find yourself thinking about it quite a lot, then it's important that they present for help. And then we can help them to understand, you know, some of the stigma, perhaps some of the shame and guilt that they feel actually having, feeling like somehow they've been part of this but also feeling like they've done something bad or wrong. So we don't want that sort of um, feeling or position of thinking to to stick around for too long without them having help with um, processing that. So it's that sense of, of, of shame and stigma that will be behind many children not actually coming forward and saying they've, they've seen it. Yeah, that may be one of the reasons. Um, children hide their emotions perhaps for, for lots of different things. One of them might be shame or guilt, or perhaps sometimes they want to do it because they want to protect people. Um, you know, actually, maybe they didn't watch this on their device. They watched it on somebody else's device or, or secondhand or thirdhand, and they don't actually want to get those people into trouble. So they're, they're worried about the possible chain that they might set into, into track. Uh, and also, they, they may also be wanting to try to take care of their parents, particularly if um, they feel like their parents are not coping well or that there's a, a big thing that's about to happen. They don't necessarily want to drop this on their plate as well. So there's lots and lots of different reasons. So what we want to try and do is to create a safe and an okay uh, environment as possible. Because one of the things that we know is really important for children when they're going through big events or, or, or trying to process information from disasters like this is that emotional regulation is really important. So this is being able to think constructively and having good coping skills around feelings. And it tends to be used a lot with sort of anger management, but it's far wider than that. What we want is children to have their feelings. We don't want them to not have feelings, but we want them to not be overwhelmed by them. Um, so the danger is, is that actually by not talking about this, the, that feeling doesn't get processed and it can start to weigh on them and feel like um, there's no way out of this. So what we want to do is to help them with um, those coping strategies and help them with regulating those emotions. And the best way to do that is that when you go through situations that evoke really strong feelings, actually hearing that and when a child 
has the expectation that their feelings can be appreciated and understood and not necessarily jumped upon, then those emotions, emotions then tend to become less burdensome and less urgent because each time they have them, they know that there's a way out and a way of processing that. And that's where adults, teachers, peers become really important. This idea of scaffolding to support them with their emotional regulation until they feel able to do that themselves. Is asking directly the way to go if you have suspicions as a as a parent as a as a teacher? Because we've just been talking about all these reasons why children might not want to um, express themselves. I mean, when you say we, there's, there's there's a lot of us. How, how can we do this? How can we create a a safer environment for them to talk? Yes. So it's a really good question. I mean, yes, you can ask directly, but often you won't get a straight answer. You know what that can be like sometimes um, asking a child or particularly a teenager. But at the same time, if you create an environment where you are not necessarily pestering, but making it okay for people to revisit conversations. So that's one way of accessing it through the verbal world, but also through the nonverbal world. You know, if you notice something quite different in your child or young person in your life, be you a teacher, a, a relative, or a friend, or a parent, then if you see something that's kind of not how they would normally be acting, then start to ask kind of internal questions around, you know, what what, what is this about? Um, are they kind of showing that they are regressing perhaps a little bit into a more of a, a younger age kind of behavior, which is often what you see when children are stressed, they kind of go back almost developmentally. Um, so if you start to see things like that, particularly with young children, if you start seeing clinginess or bedwetting or or stuff like that, then that gives you a fairly good nonverbal indicator that there's something going on. But also with older kids too and adolescents, if you start seeing things that actually this doesn't seem right to me, then start to try and piece together what's going on, but not in a kind of inquisitorial sort of fashion, but in a really genuine concern. I'm going to keep revisiting this with you. It's okay to have all sorts of different feelings, then perhaps even talking about examples that aren't so personal and sharing stories about how perhaps other people might be processing this information can often just make it a little bit less close for that young person and child and start talking about it in the third person. And then when the time's right, then they might start talking about themselves. Thinking also about that example you gave us, Saab, of what happened in Denmark and those big spikes in the number of psychiatric admissions. Clearly we want to try and get help into, you know, as early as possible. But we've also got to think long term here, haven't we? So I know there's been a massive immediate response with helplines uh, really, really quickly. But the reminder here is that it's it's not going to be over uh, anytime soon. So the government, I guess, and communities and NGOs and organisations are going to need to have that kind of scaffolding you're talking about and resources and money um, long term. No, not let it wane after a couple of months. You know, well, the, the numbers are declining, so we'll just wind things down. It feels like that is a valuable lesson here. Yeah, I think so. I think there were lessons also, similar lessons, different issues learned in the response to the earthquakes in Canterbury as well. You know, what we found out that actually in years three and four and five, it was a completely different set of people who started coming forward for assistance because they were the ones who kind of had been carrying stuff for a while and thought, actually, 
other people need this help more than I do right now. But after carrying that load for a long period of time, especially after getting caught up in the whole EQC insurance stuff that people were trying to navigate their way through and some people still still are there, that starts to take a toll. Now, the danger then is that actually what you start to see is services, service number, service use numbers start tailing off and people take that as a signal that the service isn't needed anymore. And then they're surprised by actually when they start announcing, oh, actually, we might not do this service anymore. Suddenly a whole new set of cases start coming out and people start going, well, why didn't you come forwards beforehand? What we learned from the Canterbury earthquake sequence is that people actually put their needs second they thought other people needed the service more, particularly when we have conversations around scarce resource. People will say, actually, other people need it more than I do. And when they get wind that actually the service may, may go away, that's when they step forward. So we really need to be mindful that there are a lot of people who may feel things and may not necessarily attribute it to this event later on down the track. But when we start hearing the media stories and start going through the court case or we start going through sentencing on all the other different things that are going to happen subsequent to this event that are tied to this event, then we can expect there to be ripples. And for, for a lot of people, they may be quite substantial. You've covered off some of this, uh, but it, it brings together everything we've been talking about. A, a text from a listener saying this, what do I look for if I don't know if my young teen, teenager has seen the terrible video and is not telling me for whatever reason, like embarrassment, and is therefore not asking for help? So that's straight from the heart. What are some really practical things that this parent c- can do tonight to at least get the ball rolling? Yeah, if you're noticing things like you know your your um, young person in your life is not sleeping particularly well or eating particularly well or is less conversational, or, you know, just those sorts of different changes in behaviour. And it may not make itself apparent to start off with. Kids can be quite good at hiding this stuff for a while, but when they're not sleeping because they're having thoughts or ideas around what it is that they've seen, that starts to mount up after a while, and it may show itself in its their behavior, they may become more irritable, may snappy, and all of this is related to their lack of sleep. Or they may start to feel withdrawn and not go out and see their friends or change their friends because actually their friends are actually concerned about them and they don't want to go here and they don't really want to talk about it. So they start avoiding the friends who are asking them these sorts of caring questions. So really what you have to do is to become a little bit of a detective. So yeah, you have to kind of ask straight out. That's probably a good idea if you have that kind of a relationship with your child. Uh, But then you also need to be taking other sort of channels as well. And it may be that actually talking to you know, their, their friends or talking to school and getting information, uh, trying to piece together what the picture is for, for your young person in your life. So here's a, a view I've uh, seen in various forms. I thought I'd share with you uh, a text saying, here in Wellington I've observed that in general children and teens are not traumatised by the news of the terror attacks, including some who saw some or all of the accused perpetrators' video. Sure, they're doing some sense-making and that's important. Uh, the listener says, I'm really concerned about the constant messaging that they may be traumatised, which does lead them to reframe or worry about themselves. This is already prevalent. I've got anxiety when they're actually experiencing normal emotions. Please can we stop stop teaching our young that there's an expectation that they are or will be mentally unwell. What's your response to that? No, I think that I think that's a good point. You know, what we what we've seen in the literature is we can see roughly 70 to 80% of people probably at the higher end are okay 
when they go through an event. Um, but really serious events like this, that number may shrink down a little bit, but still the majority of people are going to be able to co cope with this okay. They may have some short-term ups and downs because of it, but it is not a trauma reaction that they will be experiencing. So I think it is important to have that message out there. I think they're right. However, for a significant minority, they may need some help. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have a long-lasting trauma reaction that's going to need a full-blown PTSD response, but it may be that they need some help in order to help them to process to stop that from happening. So there's this idea that, um, so kind of like um, the difference between assimilation and accommodation. So there's an idea that, um, you know, you have an idea around the world, and when that world changes, if it's not too drastic, then you can assimilate that information and it doesn't change your world too much and you just kind of carry on. Now, for those people, those young people who have perhaps had a fairly diverse exposure to other world events that have been going on, or they've had parents that have had conversations with them, they've been exposed to this somehow, then actually it's probably not going to be too much of a jump for them. For young people or children where they require a really big jump to understand and process what it is that they've just been through, what it is that the country has been through, and the impact upon them, their family, the people that they care about, their identity, then these are the people then perhaps are at higher risk of having to make a big cognitive jump in order to understand and get meaning or make some meaning of what's happened. And when you have to make big cognitive jumps, to make meaning, then often emotions come up with that too. And that's when those people may need more assistance around the emotions associated with making big cognitive jumps around understanding what has just happened in my world and how does this change things. Thank you so much, Saab. Saab Johal, psychologist and disaster mental health expert. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> 